You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 5, verse 9, Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing before we begin our study. Our Father, we come to your word and it is our desire that you would meet us here in your word. We desire that truth might govern our lives and our conduct, that truth might govern our thinking, and of course that your truth would be the center of our meeting here today. We gather around it, we rejoice in it, and we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to it. As we look at some very difficult to understand things, And even only in a cursory way, we do pray that you would grant us the discernment and illumination that we need to rightly apprehend these things with our minds, to embrace them and embrace these truths, and to reflect upon the glories of your nature. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the Spirit of God which resides within every believer. And we pray now, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and our guide and that your word would be our rule. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been intending now for two weeks to say something that is germane to John chapter 5, but I forgot it both weeks, two weeks in a row. Um, I actually wrote it into my manuscript both weeks, but obviously I don't get up here and read my manuscript to you, because if I did, that would sound organized and planned and all of that stuff, so uh, I, it's easy to forget that stuff. Two weeks ago, I gave to you all of the regulations attached to the Sabbath that the Jews had heaped upon the Old Testament Sabbath regulations. And then last week, we looked at this controversy that sort of broke out over Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath. And both of those times, I meant to tell you about a particular Jewish rabbinical regulation that had to do with carrying a pallet. They actually had a they actually had a regulation that detailed when and how you could carry a pallet in a situation like this. The Jews had a rule, a regulation that said you could carry a cripple on the Sabbath, but you could not carry a cripple's bed on the Sabbath. Now, if you carried the cripple on his bed, that would be okay, because in that case, the bed is really an extension of the cripple. It's kind of was considered part of him. So you couldn't carry a cripple's bed, but you could carry the cripple, and you could carry the cripple on his bed. So if you wanted to transport on the Sabbath both the cripple and his bed, you had to carry the cripple on the bed. 
Now that just goes to show you how silly some of the regulations that they had about the Sabbath were. I ask you this, what, what is easier, carrying a cripple or carrying a cripple and his bed at the same time? Which is easier? It is far less work to carry a cripple and his bed separately than to try and carry a cripple on his bed. But that, you shouldn't bother trying to, try and figure out and make sense of things like that. When you start heaping man's rules upon man's rules, you get all of this goofy stuff. It also shows you just how uncaring and uncompassionate the Jews were. Here they had a man who had been healed who was carrying his pallet. That they could not tolerate. Now, if somebody had picked the cripple up, if Jesus had picked the cripple up and carried him on his bed, they wouldn't have had any problem with that. But Jesus could have picked the cripple up and carried the cripple, but Jesus could not carry the cripple's bed. That shows you that these Jews, listen, they would rather have seen this man crippled and being carried on his bed than cured and carrying his own bed on the Sabbath. You see how uncompassionate that is? What was it that infuriated them? The fact that this man was carrying his pallet, his bed, on the Sabbath, and the fact that he was cured. And to them, they would rather have him crippled and being carried than cured and carrying his own bed. The fact that this man, the fact that the Jews had that regulation and that this man was carrying his his bed on the Sabbath was an indication to them of just how much of a quote-unquote Sabbath breaker Jesus was. It also should show to us that this miracle in John 5 was intentional. See, I believe that Jesus sought this man out and he singled this man out because we know up from up in verse 3 that there were a multitude of people in the pool that day. This man wasn't the only one. There were blind people there that day. There were crippled people there. There were paralyzed people. There were sick people just in need of a cure. But Jesus singled out one, the man with the bed. You see, Jesus curing this man was either an accident or it was intentional. Now, which do you think the Lord did? It can't be both, and it can't be some mixture of both. He either cured this man by accident, in other words, he, he didn't see this coming, or he cured this man intentionally out of all the people in the pool, he singled sovereignly out this man for a cure. I think he singled out sovereignly this man for a cure for, the, for this very reason. Jesus knew their Sabbath regulations. He knew they had a regulation against carrying a pallet on the Sabbath. He knew what their Jewish rules and requirements were for the Sabbath. And he, yet he singled out this man. He could have cured any of the other men. Why this man? Because this man would draw attention to himself carrying his bed in the crowd outside the temple on the Sabbath. That's why this man. See, Jesus could have cured a blind man in the pool, couldn't he? And a blind man would have walked out of the pool, walked through the crowd, and went home and never have caught any of the attention of anybody standing around outside the temple on the Sabbath. He could have cured a man who was there with a withered hand or a withered limb, and that man would have walked out of the pool, out through the crowd, not carrying anything, wouldn't have drawn any particular attention on the Sabbath because nobody was bearing burdens on the Sabbath. He could have cured a deaf man or a sick person who could have walked through the crowd without drawing any attention to himself whatsoever. Probably nobody would have noticed just another person walking through the crowd. Nobody asked him what had happened. But a man carrying his pallet, that would be noticed. And that is why I think Jesus singled this man out. He knew what the pallet regulations were for the Sabbath, and he singled out the person in the pool who had a bed, and why him? So that he could command him, pick up your pallet and walk. And of course, then you get the controversy and the opportunity for Jesus to say everything that he does in verses 17 through the end of the chapter. It was intentional. Jesus intentionally did something that assaulted their human regulations and their human laws and their vain man-made parameters for the Sabbath. 
He intentionally did that. Intentionally. For what reason? To confront their self-righteousness. You see, the fact that they were self-righteous and they had added all these rules and regulations to the Sabbath and they'd heaped all of this upon themselves, that was not something that was peripheral to the issue. The fact of the matter is that the nation itself was under the burden of a self-righteous heart, a self-righteous attitude. They were self-righteous. They had no spiritual life. They thought they had life. They deceived themselves into thinking that they had life, but they didn't. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You don't have any spiritual life. They thought that they did. And in confronting their self-righteousness and getting right to the heart of the issue, their abuse of the law and their neglect of the righteousness of God which comes through faith, in assaulting that and confronting that, Jesus got right to the heart of the issue with the Jews. The last week we looked at uh, everything up to verse 15. We stopped at verse 15 and we saw what has to be one of the most remarkable expressions of ingratitude in all of Scripture. The man was healed on the Sabbath and knowing how hostile the Jews were, knowing how the Jews would feel about Jesus for healing on the Sabbath and for commanding him to carry his pallet on the Sabbath, the man left the temple after Jesus confronted him with his sin in verse 14. He left the temple and he went and he turned Jesus in to the hostile Jewish authorities and told them, that is the man, turned state's evidence, threw Jesus under the bus, that is the man there who cured me and told me to pick up my pallet and walk. Now verse 16. Now verse 16. They began to persecute him. I want you to notice something just about the structure of verse 16, 17, and 18. And those are the three verses we're looking at this morning. Verse 16 mentions persecution. Verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 18 says they were seeking all the more to kill him. There's something interesting about verse 16. All of the verbs in verse 16 are imperfect. They're imperfect tense. Indicating that there was something that started to happen and then continued to happen with no real reference to an end point in the verb. In other words, the verb has the idea that this thing started and it really never ended. It just kind of continued on. They were persecuting him. Imperfect. They began persecuting him and they kept on persecuting him. Why? For doing these things. What did he do? Number one, he healed on the Sabbath. But second, he commanded a man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath. Something that was not a violation of the Sabbath law proper, but was a violation of all the rabbinic traditions and laws that they heaped on the Sabbath. So, because they saw Jesus as a Sabbath breaker, a Sabbath violator, they began persecuting him. And listen, that persecution would continue all the way until they hung him on a cross. It started here and it just kept on. Just kept on. This, this began basically an unrelenting, consistent persecution of Jesus as the Son of God. But also that phrase, he was doing these things on the Sabbath, is also in the imperfect tense, indicating that this was not the only Sabbath violation. In fact, this was Jesus' habitual attitude and habitual practice on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he kept doing things like this. And you get examples of them. You get an example of it in John chapter 9, healing the blind man. Matthew chapter 12, his disciples doing things that violated the Sabbath. Jesus' consistent, traditional, persistent attitude towards the Sabbath was to keep it under the law of God, to observe the law of God, but to walk all over the commandments of men and all the Pharisees and the Jews and what they'd heaped on the Sabbath. That was his consistent practice. Their consistent practice was to meet that with persecution. They started persecuting him, kept on persecuting him, and Jesus did not back down. He kept on violating the Sabbath, at least violating their Sabbath laws, not the real Sabbath, but their Sabbath laws. He kept violating the Sabbath. So they began persecuting him in verse 16, and he answers it in verse 17. He answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now it's interesting how Jesus does not answer their persecution. He doesn't meet their persecution by by saying this, which he could have done, and he did this in other other times. 
He could have said to them, look, you guys have so twisted the law of God. You guys have so perverted the Sabbath as to have entirely missed it. And what you have done is you have added rules upon regulations and you have made vain the commandments of God by your traditions. You set aside all of the commandment of God in order to keep your little petty traditions and you become experts at it. He could have, he could have confronted them with their abuse of the law and he could have pointed out the difference between God's law and their petty regulations. And he could have shown them, I am obligated and I can keep God's law, but I'm not obligated to keep all of your petty little regulations. He could have answered them that way. But Jesus didn't. Instead, he did something much more radical and much more provocative. He said in verse 17, My father has been working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, he doesn't even address the distinction between the law of God and the law of men. He doesn't even address the fact that he had violated all of their rabbinical traditions and how petty and useless and vain they were. He doesn't even address the fact that they had done this to the law of God and made it nothing by heaping all of this stuff on them. Instead, he gets... Right to the heart of the issue, my father has been working until now, and I myself am working. Now look at their response. We're getting back to verse 17 in just a second, because this is really the crux of the persecution issue. Look at verse 18. Therefore, for this reason, uh, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So persecution begins in verse 16. In verse 17, Jesus meets that persecution with that one statement. My father's been working until now, and I myself am working. And by the way, there's nothing in the text that indicates when verse 17 was spoken. It may have been very close after this man turned Jesus into the authorities. Maybe it was in the temple. Maybe Jesus was in the temple, the man turned him into the Jews, and this confrontation took place. We don't know. It might have been a couple of days or some period of time. Also, we don't know how, how close verses 19 through the end of the chapter all the rest of this discourse, we don't know how close that follows verse 17. There's a connection in theme between verse 17 and verses 19 through 47. Think of it this way. Verse 17 is really sort of a nugget, a kernel. It's one little statement. And that one little kernel expounded upon and, and unfolded and unpacked and illuminated and explained in its fullness is verses 19 through 47. If you take 19 through 47, you fold it all up and you try and put it into one statement, it's verse 17. My father has been working until now, and I myself am working. Well, how did the Jews understand that? Verse 18, for this reason they were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, or at least breaking the Sabbath as they perceived it, as they observed it, but he was calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. How did the Jews understand Jesus' statement in verse 17? Now, when you read that, at first, at first blush, at first read through, my father's been working until now, and I myself am working. That sounds rather benign, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like it should really elicit the type of hostility that we read about in verse 18. The fact that they were trying to kill him and seeking to kill him. And they would do that all the way until they hung him on a cross. Until you understand that as you begin to unfold verse 17 and see it for what Jesus is saying, He was in that statement in verse 17 claiming equality with God. That's the essence of verse 17. He was claiming equality with God. That's exactly how the Jews understood what he was saying. Now, critics of the deity of Christ, and by the way, we here believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in human flesh, the fullness of God, the fullness of man, two natures in one person. He is the full expression of God in human flesh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's sufficient. 
Critics of the deity of Christ who say, no, no, Jesus was not God, are quick to point out that nowhere in the Gospels do you ever read of Jesus saying, quote, I am God, end quote. Have you ever heard that argument? You never read of Jesus anywhere in the Gospels saying, quote, I am God, end quote. You'll never hear him claim that. Is that true or false? It's true. Nobody wants to answer that because everything says it's a trick question. It's true after a fashion. You will never hear those particular words come from the mouth of Jesus. But the issue with the doctrine of the deity of Christ is not, did Jesus ever say the words, I am God, quote unquote, but did Jesus ever utter words that communicated the essence of I am God? In other words, did he say things that plainly were claims to deity and equality with God? And the answer to that is, yes, he did. In fact, he said things that if they were said by an ordinary man or even a really religious teacher are either deceptive or they're outright lies, or it was themselves a claim to deity. For instance, Jesus Christ himself claimed to be equal with the Father in his work, in his authority, in his nature, in his glory. Jesus claimed to exist before heaven and earth were created, before anything else was created. He claimed to exist with the Father. He claimed to enjoy the glory of the Father, and he claimed to have a right to that glory with the Father. Jesus claimed to be the the one object of faith and worship and obedience, which grants eternal life. Jesus claimed to control the destinies of all men who have ever been born and ever will be born. Jesus claimed the ability and the power and the right to answer prayer, to forgive sins, and to grant eternal life. Jesus said to Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Other people called him God. Even if Jesus never said the words, I am God, other people did call him God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thomas called him in John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. He's called Lord. He's called the Sovereign One. He is called God all the way through Scripture. Jesus called God's angels his angels, God's elect his elect, God's kingdom his kingdom, God's word his word, God's glory his glory, and he claimed equality with the Father. And significant and germane to the meaning of John chapter 5, Jesus also claimed to have authority over the divine institution of the Sabbath. So did Jesus ever utter the words, I am God? He may have never said those three words, but he didn't need to. All he needed to do was make a claim to deity, to equality with God in order to be considered God. And that's exactly what he does in verse 17. So let's pick it up in verse 17. There are three things in verse 17. Jesus is claiming equality with the Father in three things. Remember these three things and you got the whole message. Equality with the Father in nature, equality with the Father in works, and equality with the Father in authority. Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Father in nature, in work, and in authority. Verse 17, let's read it together. My Father, now stop right there. Those two words, it's a good place to stop. Those two words are the crux of the whole issue. Those two words are the crux of the whole issue. All of the persecution that came his way in verse 16 and verse 17, and they're seeking to kill him, hinged upon those two words, my Father. And you say, but what's so blasphemous about that? Or what's so heretical about that? What's so angering to the Jews about those two words? Don't we call God our Father? We do, but in a different sense. Jesus said, My Father. And you look down at verse 18. What was the crux of the issue? He was claiming that God was His own Father, making Himself equal with God. 
Those two words, my father, are a claim to equality of nature. Now listen, all of the Jews would have agreed that God was the father of all of the Jews in a national sense. God was their father by national election or national selection. So being a Jew, being a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, therefore God was their father or the father of that nation. God was a father in that sort of nationalistic sense. No Jew would have argued with that. And if Jesus had just said, our father, to the Jews who were standing there, our father has been working until now, that wouldn't have raised any eyebrows. That wouldn't have been any problem whatsoever. Every Jew standing there would have said, yeah, we understand that. You're a Jew, we're a Jew, he's our father, he's your father. Yeah, if Jesus had said, our father is working until now, no problem. Or if Jesus had meant by those words, the father, indicating not even national selection, but even a fatherhood in a more general sense, that God is the creator of all things. And as creator of all things, everything that has life comes from him. So he is the father of all people who have ever lived in a creator sense. And he is the father of all of creation, so that anything that has life owes its existence to him. And since it owes its existence to him, he would rightly be called the father of all creation. He's the one who is from whom all of creation issued forth, and all life issues forth. So he's the father of the animals, he's the father of the plants, he's the father of all of creation. No Jew would have had a problem with that. If Jesus had said the father, meaning a general fathership of creation, no Jew would have had a problem with that. Wouldn't have raised any eyebrows whatsoever. Though some Jews might have said, we're not quite sure about him being the father of Gentiles and Samaritans. They might have had just a little bit over that and might have kind of bantered back and forth about that and we'll parse that out a little bit and we'll be careful we don't take that too far. But generally speaking, they wouldn't have tried to kill him for that. But when Jesus said, my father, he was not saying our father, he was not saying the father, he was claiming a unique and exclusive relationship with the father that they did not enjoy and that nobody else enjoyed. That's what the word begotten means. Do you remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 3 we saw that? Monogenes is the word for begotten. It doesn't mean generated or coming into existence. It means unique, only unique. And it stresses the uniqueness, the preeminence of this one. He is the only and unique Son of God. Jesus is not a Son of God. He's not a Son of God by election. He's not a child of God by adoption. He's not a Son of God by by selection or by regeneration or in any way like we are. He is the unique Son of God. If I said to you that I am a son of God unlike anybody else in this room, none of you have the standing that I enjoy with God. I am the unique son of God. If I made that claim to you, you would call that what? Blasphemy. And you would be right because you would be understanding that I am making a claim about my nature, something about me that nobody else in this room enjoys. Jesus was not claiming to be a son of God. He was claiming to be the unique Son of God, when he said, my father, not our father, not the father, not father, nothing generic about it, nothing general about it at all, but specific, my father. They understood that to be blasphemy because he was equating himself with God by claiming the very nature of God, that he enjoyed a relationship and an exclusive one with God that none of the other Jews enjoyed or could, and none of them could even compare their relationship with his. So God is our Father by adoption, not by nature. When we call God our Father, we don't mean that we share the nature of God. We are partakers of the divine nature, but that's not to have the divine nature, as in we are by nature gods or little gods. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have the divine nature living within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, united with our humanity in the person of Christ. But we are children of God, not by nature, but by election and by adoption and by regeneration. 
Jesus is the Son of God by virtue of His very nature. So He claims, My Father, and look at verse 18, that was the issue, that was the issue, that exclusive claim to sonship that made them want to kill Him all the more. It was actually what they said to Pilate to get Him hung on the cross. If you were to turn back to chapter 19, verse 7, you would find that when Pilate washed his hands, he says, I see nothing wrong with this person. I see nothing wrong with this man. I find no charge against him. The Jews said to him, by our law, he must die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. That's why they wanted him on the cross. Not because he was claiming just to be a Jew. Not just he was claiming he was God was his father in a general sense, but because he claimed to be the Son of God, they understood exactly what that meant. He is claiming to be equal with God. And though Pilate said, I find no fault in him, the Jews said, by our law, he must die because he's a blasphemer because he claimed that God was his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is equal with God in God's nature. And what was the second one? In his works. In his works. My father has been working until now. Now, every Jew who heard that understood exactly what he was saying. My father has been working all the way up until this point. And you and I can say the same thing, that God, our father by adoption, has been working and is working all the way up until now. He has been working since the moment of creation. When he said, let there be light, he started working right then, and he has continued working all the way up until now. But when he rested on the seventh day, what did he rest from? Did God rest from all of his works? He didn't rest from all of his works. He rested from what? The work of creation. But if God had stopped working, if God had started being idle and ceased all activity on the seventh day, what what would have happened to everything that had come into being on the first six days? It would have dissolved into nothingness. On the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation, but God was not idle. God always worked. And on the seventh day, though he wasn't creating anymore, he was sustaining by the word of his power everything he had brought into existence on the first six days. So the first six days he created. On the seventh day, he rested and ceased from his work of creation, But he never ceased from his work of providence and his work of provision. And on that seventh day, the sun came up and the sun went down and the planets continued in their courses and the stars burned and they all stayed in place and everything held together and the angels continued to exist and the plants continued to grow and the sun continued to shine and God upheld by his providence and by his power and his care everything he had made it on the first six days. God never has ever stopped working. He, by his effort, by his energy, by his power, upholds all things by the word of his power. So he is always working. My father has been working until now. The Jews understood that. What does that mean? It means that God in heaven worked not only on the first Sabbath, but he has worked in some sense and in some way on every consecutive day since creation and every consecutive Sabbath since creation. God never stopped working. God is a working God. He is always active. He is always working. And he never stops working. I myself am working. Now just stop for a second and let that sink in. My father has been working all the way up until now. I myself am working. What was he claiming to be doing? What is it that God does on every Sabbath? Does he stop working? No. On every Sabbath, on every day, at every moment, God is continually upholding his entire creation providing for the needs of all of his creatures, doing acts of mercy, doing acts of kindness, acts of providence, holding it all together, angels, unseen things, seen things, all of creation, everything is upheld and sustained and continues to exist by his dynamic power. That is what God does. God does the works on the Sabbath that only God can do. I myself am working as well. Do you see how that is a claim to deity? 
What the Father does on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, is exactly what I do on the Sabbath. You want to know what I do on the Sabbath? I do everything that the Father is doing. Do you understand how they saw that as blasphemous? If I said to you, if I said to you, and these words can hardly even come out of my lips, if I said to you, our God has been doing every day what only our God can do, and I myself am doing the same things, you would understand that to be blasphemy. And rightly so. It would be blasphemy. Jesus said everything that the Father has done and is doing and continues to do, those are the same things that I myself am doing. That is an equality of work. Look at verse 19, and this is how I say that verse 19 through 47 is the unfolding of everything in verse 17. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. What does the Father do? He upholds His whole creation. That is what the Son does. What was the Son doing at this very moment? He was doing everything that God the Father was doing. In His humanity, He was there, standing before these Jews, and they were criticizing Him for healing on the Sabbath. If they only knew all that He was doing. What was He doing? Providing for the needs of His entire creation. Holding together everything unseen and seen. Keeping the stars in their courses and the planets rotating around our sun. Upholding everything. Keeping atoms together and electrons together. He was doing all of that. And they were saying, you're healing on the Sabbath. You don't even know the half of it. What was he really doing? Everything that the Father was doing. That is either the most wicked blasphemy that has ever been uttered by human lips or it is one of the most profound truths ever revealed to the mind of men. That is incredible. My Father has been working all the way up until now. Everything He does, whatever He does, I do. That's equality of nature. It's equality of work. And I want you to see the third thing. It is equality of authority. Now, this one flows from the other. See, if Jesus Christ is equal to God in nature, then He must also do the works of God. Because you can't be God and not do the works of God. And you can't do the works of God without being God. So to claim equality of nature means he also did all of the works of God. And to do all of the works of God means that there's no other option. He must be God. So to claim to be equal with God in nature is to also claim to be equal with God in all of God's works. And the third thing naturally flows from it. He is also equal to God in authority. In authority. And this is the issue. What was the Sabbath intended to be? Sabbath was not intended to be a cessation of all work. Works of necessity, works of compassion, pulling an animal out of a ditch, helping people. All of those things were intended to be done on the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't a prohibition of works of necessity or works of kindness and mercy to his creation. But they had made it, of course, a, a prohibition of all kinds of works, all the effort. Do you remember the putting up and the lifting up and the setting down with the hand and the one hand and all of that stuff? They tried to make the Sabbath into a cessation from all work, but it never was intended to be that. So the question is, did Jesus have the right to do an act of mercy, a work of mercy on the Sabbath. Did he have the right to treat the Sabbath in any way that he wanted to treat the Sabbath? And the answer to that question is, if he is God by nature, and he is equal to the Father in nature, and if he is equal to the Father in works, then yes, Jesus has the right to treat the Sabbath any way he wants to treat the Sabbath. Why? Because he is God. And Sabbath rules do not apply to God. Does God keep the Sabbath? In no way and in no sense. 
God exerts a tremendous amount of power every moment of every day. Sabbath rules do not apply to God. And if Sabbath rules do not apply to God the Father, then Sabbath rules do not apply to God the Son, and Sabbath rules do not apply to God the Holy Spirit. God does not keep the Sabbath. God is not bound by the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't made for God. So God can do what He wants on the Sabbath. Now here's a key distinction, and this you gotta keep carefully in your mind or it leads us into all kinds of error. Jesus in His humanity did submit Himself to all of the Sabbath law of the Old Testament. Not the man-made requirements. But He submitted Himself to observe the Sabbath in His humanity. And Jesus the man, Jesus the God-man, did observe the Sabbath, every Sabbath, and He kept it perfectly as it was designed and intended to be kept. He never violated or broke the Sabbath. But that doesn't mean that He stopped working. Because Jesus the God-man, while He was observing the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath and not doing anything that the Father prohibited Him to do on the Sabbath in His humanity, He was at the same time upholding all things by the word of His power. So He was, at the same time, fulfilling and observing the Sabbath and never violating it and doing all of the works that only God does on the Sabbath. Does that blow your mind? Did Jesus, the man, ever violate the Sabbath? Never. He kept the full law perfectly. But while He was keeping and observing the true Sabbath, He was at the same time doing all of the work that God does on the Sabbath because it's not a violation of the Sabbath for God to do what God does on the Sabbath. Does that make sense? It's not a violation of the Sabbath for God to do what God does on the Sabbath. So Jesus was doing, as God, everything that God does on the Sabbath and He was perfectly observing the Sabbath that was intended to be kept by man. Incredible stuff, isn't it? Is that way heavy on your head yet? Jesus claimed equality with the Father in nature, in works, and in authority. When the whole Sabbath controversy broke in Matthew chapter 12, do you remember how Jesus answered it? He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see, that answers the question right there, doesn't it? He basically was saying, I have authority over the Sabbath to do with the Sabbath whatever I want. I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath because I'm Lord of it. It's under my dominion. It's under my sovereignty. It's under my control. It's my institution, and I can treat it however I well please. That was essentially what he was saying. It is under my lordship. I'm not bound by the Sabbath. Though in his humanity he submitted to it, he was not bound by it. As God, he did all of the works of God on the Sabbath. Now, friends, this is either, as I said, the most outrageously blasphemous statement that has ever been made by a man. Or it is the most profoundly glorious and rich truth that has ever been revealed. It's one of those two. Do you realize that the one who spoke the entire universe into existence without losing any of his deity, without losing any of his nature, without compromising the essence of his being whatsoever, condescended here and took upon himself human flesh. And he lived and walked and dwelt among us. His glory was veiled, but his nature was not changed. He added humanity to his nature. And he came and he lived here. And he died on a cross and he shed his blood to atone for dirty, rotten, filthy, sinful wretches like you and I. Isn't that incredible? This one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was God in human flesh, is worthy of our worship because he was God in the flesh, equal to the Father in nature, in works, and in authority. 
Now, obviously, I have not unloaded for you the entire apple cart of the doctrine of the deity of Christ this morning, have I? There's all kinds of stuff that could be said, all kinds of questions that could be answered. There's a whole apple cart waiting for us in verses 19 through 47. All we've done today is sort of take one apple off and and turn it around and look at it. As incomplete and as, as imperfect as this explanation and our understanding of it is now, we are going to, as we work our way through verses 19 to 47, we're just going to continue to unload that apple cart a little bit by little bit. I am excited, but I am dreading jumping into verses 19 to 47. Because I'll tell you this, this is water that is so deep, we cannot even tread in it. It is so rich and so profound. Jesus is going to spend the rest of this chapter unfolding for us his relationship with the Father. And we are going to get a glimpse into the eternal counsels of the Trinity. That's just marvelous. This wonderful truth. And we'll start that, verse 19, next week. Let's pray. Father, these things are so far beyond us and higher than we are. This is truly doctrine which is the heights of your glory and your person and your nature. And it is surrounded by mystery and we are limited by the limits of our understanding and our own mind and our own brain and our comprehension. We cannot but apprehend these things. We can never fully comprehend them. We pray, O oh God, that you give us the grace to respond in obedience and to love you and to constantly give to Jesus Christ the glory that he is due. We thank you, our God, that you took upon yourself flesh and came here to dwell among us and died on a cross to pay the price for our sins. Only an infinite person could pay that price. It was an infinite price. And thank you that Jesus the man stood in our place and Jesus the God-man atoned for our sin. We praise you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.